Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing none, none other than my friend and one of my favorite members of Congress, Karen Bass. But before we get to Congresswoman Bass, I wanted to talk about these wildfires in Greece and Turkey, climate change, and what this means for us here in the States. So in case you missed it, for the last week or so, multiple fires have been burning through southern Europe, from southern Italy to the Balkans, Greece, and Turkey. A protracted heat wave and dry conditions facilitated massive fires across the region, and the leadership in these countries have rightly identified the cause. Here, in climate change, where historic high temperatures and dry conditions have left lots of places, including Oregon and California, who have seen their own recent string of wildfires of late, vulnerable to these same fires. And in places like Miami and Charleston, South Carolina, it's massive flooding and an extended hurricane season. That's why it's vital that we use this window of opportunity over the next few weeks in Washington to chart a course in this reconciliation package to make the investments in clean energy technology, to reduce the carbon emissions that drive climate change. Progressives are right in making this a red line as so many of the issues we're seeing globally from massive hurricanes to wildfires to historic heat waves can be traced back to carbon emissions that we all have power to stop. Kudos to progressives in the House and in the Senate who are making us think about the climate change, being part of the $3 trillion Democratic-only package, and to this administration for taking the right steps on climate change because we're all one flood, hurricane, or wildfire from having our lives ruined. The time for action is now. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Congresswoman Bass. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I just want to welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast as I am now live from Hilton Head, South Carolina at the South Carolina Association of Justice, actual CLEs. But I have a good friend of mine, somebody who is, I don't even think arguably, but one of the most effective legislators we have, the Honorable uh, Karen Bass. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for that those kind words. Glad to be here with you. No, I mean, I, I just, you know, most people, you know, who don't pay attention to Congress, they learned your name during the vice presidential 
selection process, if that was the case. But for some of us who pay attention, we've known your work for a very long period of time. So talk about your career. You've had one of the most interesting career paths of any member of Congress because you were community activist, a social worker, and a healthcare professional all before running for public office. You're not a career politician. How did all that work shape your politics? Well, actually, you know, I think it was uh, during the time period I grew up because I, I consider myself to have be, uh, started as an activist when I was about 14. And so, but it never occurred to me, Bakari, that I could make a living being an activist. So I went into healthcare and um, worked uh, first as a nurse and then as a PA, a physician assistant in the emergency room at County General Hospital. But after work, I was always active, depending on which decade you're talking about. So I was very active in the anti-apartheid movement and the the liberation struggles in Southern Africa. And uh, when crack cocaine hit to me, I thought it was going to be like COVID on the black community. I mean, it just felt like it was going to wipe us out. And then the fact that policymakers were criminalizing what I thought was a health problem. Uh, criminalizing addiction and also not understanding that young people were drawn to trafficking because they didn't have any economic opportunities. So a health and an economic issue was criminalized. So that led me to start Community Coalition in 1990 to fight against mass incarceration that it was beginning. We saw it. We tried to stop it at its beginning. We weren't able to. And then over the years, it led me to public office. So I actually never thought about it as a career trajectory. It was more just an evolution as to how I've been involved. And Bakari, the issues I work on in Congress are the same issues that I was working on 30 years ago in South Central Los Angeles. Same struggle, different arena. Man, and some of those problems haven't changed even over the years. So many people listening have heard of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We'll just hop right in. But they may not fully grasp what it does. And I don't want to rock the boat. I know there are some very sensitive discussions that are ongoing with, like, weirdly, all of my friends. So that that I feel like I have a special place in this. But give us a high-level overview of what the bill does and why it's necessary. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I when I think about the bill, I think about it in categories. The first and most important category is accountability. So we have 18,000 police departments in the United States, 18,000 ways of doing policing. And uh, we keep seeing death after death after death. On an average day, three people die at the hands of police. And so there needs to be transparency and accountability. And one of the things that really frustrates communities is They see these incidents happen and then charges aren't brought or the charges don't stick. And that's because prosecuting an officer, the bar is so high, we're not able to prosecute. Uh, You can't even sue an officer because of qualified immunity. And so there needs to be accountability in policing, just like any other profession. Can you imagine your surgeon having no accountability, no transparency at all? He could leave an instrument in your body and you can't do anything about it. We would think that would be horrific. Well, that is the situation with policing. That's one category. The other one is there are certain practices that need to be banned. Chokeholds, no-knock warrants that um, resulted in Breonna Taylor dying. Uh, There needs to be a registry of officers that have uh, abused people, abused people's civil rights. And so calling for a registry, that would have prevented the death of Tamir Rice. The officer that killed the 12-year-old child 
had just been fired from another department. And so what happens a lot of times is, is that an officer in the rare instance, when an officer is fired, all they have to do is just go down the street to another department. The other thing is, is that the bill provides grants to communities to really re-envision policing because Bakari, over the years, we have divested or defunded social and economic services. So I think it's completely unfair that police officers are left to pick up the pieces. When we don't fund social and economic and health programs, then you call police. That's why you have so many incidences of officer-involved violence connected to a mental health crisis. Families are left with nothing except for to call 911. And then after they call 911, they pray that the police help their relative and not kill their relative or incarcerate their relative. So basically, we've allowed our mental health system to fall apart and we incarcerate people with mental illness. That's what we do. And so we need to provide support to communities and communities need to have the ability to re-envision what public safety is. That's a top line overview of the bill. There are many more features, but I think those are the ones that are the most uh, important. Let me ask a couple of tough, tough questions. So during this time where you have a violent and let, let me just I'm going to give you one from a Republican or a more conservative perspective and one from a Democratic perspective where you have an uptick in violence uh, that you've seen or violent crimes around the country. What do you say to those who say, well, now is not the time to reform policing or look at it as they are mutually exclusive? How do you combat that narrative that we should not be reforming the police while we have an uptick in violence around the country? Well, first of all, I think that's exactly what we should be doing, because at some point in our country, we have to ask ourselves, do we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again? And so when we get to the point of reform, and by the way, crime moves in cycles. Crime ticks up, crime goes down. Crime ticks up, crime goes down. And by the way, one murder is too many. One violent crime is too many. There should not be rampant crime, period. I do think, though, that we need to have a perspective on it. There has been an uptick, but it is nowhere near the levels of what crime was in the 1990s. And so the cycle that happens is there's a horrible incident. There's a Rodney King incident, okay? And then there is civil unrest. Well, we can't reform the police because people just rioted. No, we have to reform policing. And the other excuse that's used is is that so many police are getting discouraged now. Well, they're getting discouraged because the profession is vilified. Why is the profession vilified? Because people see video after video of violent assaults. And so I think that we need to put the reforms in place. I don't see the reforms as being anti-police at all. I see the reforms as uplifting policing and bringing policing into the 21st century and making it accountable like any other profession. Ultimately, when we improve policing, that is going to improve the image and people will want to join the profession. No one wants to join a profession that is vilified. So when you talk about the priority within the caucus now from my friends who are on the left, probably further left than both you and I, but they they say that you prioritize us during the election cycle. But here we have no justice issues that have been we don't have the Voting Rights Act. We don't have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and defunding the police has been blamed for so much. How do we 
how do we overcome that? And what's the narrative? Do we just say, be patient, it's coming? How do we, how do we tell our friends to be active and participate in this process to bring about the change we want to see? Well, you know, I think that um, it's one of the responsibilities that I carry on my shoulders every single day. We asked, in particular, Black people to come out and vote. And we told them that we were going to get voting rights. We told them that we were going to get police reform. So what I say is continue to hold us accountable. Continue to hold our feet to the fire until we get the job done. Now, it's also important that I explain the impediment to why we haven't been able to get the job done. And that is the backward procedure in the, in the Senate known as the filibuster. And we need to work to change that as well. And I would encourage people to contact their senators, Democrat or Republican, and say that we need to get work done on behalf of the American people. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let me switch gears, because one of the coolest jobs you have, in my opinion, is not being the lead kind of uh, uh, negotiator on criminal justice, although that's important. But you're also the chairwoman of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, which does not get talked about a lot, which is why people come to this show so we can kind of get in the weeds and talk about things that most people don't know. So, yes, we're talking to the subcommittee chair on Africa. But I, I want to juxtapose something. I feel like China is leaps and bounds ahead of the U.S. in terms of how it invests and prioritizes the continent of Africa. Explain to listeners why that's not a good thing and why we should care about the continent as an American economic and security priority. Well, uh, first of all, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to come to Congress was to work on Africa. As I mentioned, I was very involved in the liberation, supporting liberation struggles in the 70s and 80s. And um, obviously, I feel a connection to Africa because I'm an African-American and I feel it's my responsibility to really push and promote the U.S. viewing Africa better. You know what I say, Bukhari? I say that a lot of times our policies look and treat the African continent just like they do the inner city. We look Mm. at their cities as being hapless, helpless and hopeless. Those people that live in those areas don't have the capacity to do anything for themselves. 
I feel that a lot of times our policies look at Africa that way. And frankly, during the liberation struggles in the 70s and 80s, Bakari, we were on the wrong side. We supported mm-hmm. the colonialists. We did not support the liberation movements. Well, the Chinese did. Now, I'm no fan at all of what China is doing in Africa. But I think the responsibility is on the United States to step up because you can talk to Africans every day and they will tell you they would much rather do business with the United States than Africa. Obviously, we're at a competitive disadvantage because the Chinese can come and dump billions of dollars in because most of the businesses, not all, but they're owned by the government. So they have unlimited resources and unlimited restrictions. But what I don't like is when Americans try to tell the Africans they shouldn't do business with the Chinese. Because what are you supposed to do if you need an airport? Do you sit and wait for somebody else to come along or do you do the best you can? So I think our role should be more on holding the Chinese accountable to not putting the Africans in debt or to building shoddy roads and airports as opposed to trying to persuade the African countries not to do business with China when we're not there. So let me ask you two questions. One, I absolutely do not know the answer to, which as a lawyer, I should know better. But what was Trump's policy on the continent? Like, I have no idea what his policy was in dealing with Africa, other than calling them shithole countries. So what was his policy, if we know it all? Well, you, you could uh, phrase that question differently and say, what was Trump's foreign policy, period? <laughs> <laughs> Good, yes. Because it depended on how well he slept the night before and his Twitter account. Yes. Um, so there wasn't much of a policy or attention paid to Africa at all. I do have to say that one thing that uh, Trump did not do is he didn't destroy the initiatives that President Obama started, which is good. And he developed another one called Prosper Africa, which promotes U.S. business involvement, which is also good. And so what should we expect from Joe Biden and his administration when it comes to the continent? Well, let me just tell you what the president and vice president already did. Um, Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's even better. Shortly after the inauguration. They were on the phone together and I believe independently, not sure. But uh, they did a Zoom call with all of the leaders from Africa, the prime ministers, the presidents. The the most important thing is respect. (laughs) And that was something that was lacking in the last administration for the entire world, but of course for Africa as well. And the United States States under uh, president and vice president's leadership is also prioritizing COVID and looking at some of the economic damage that COVID uh, has done. So I think the fact that President Biden, as one of his first acts, reached out to the continent of Africa speaks volumes. So let me ask you about a playbook. So what should we be doing to improve relationships with the continent, particularly West Africa? And countries like Liberia, who we have such a close relationship with historically, Ghana and Nigeria, where so many folks from, the con- from these countries live and have family in the United States. What should the playbook be and what is your committee focused on to build those relationships and enhance it, particularly after four years of just indifference? Well, uh, first of all, I look at the continent as a whole. I don't look at it as, as West Africa or East Africa. 
What we need to do is we need to help support the development of infrastructure on the continent of Africa. So, Bakari, two-thirds of the continent doesn't have electricity. Mm. We're talking roads. We're talking running water. And so the um, African Union and all 50-plus countries developed a continental uh, free trade area. So, you know, I love the map of the African Union. It's the map of Africa with no lines. And so what the, what the continent is doing right now, I mean, I would use the example of the EU, although it's not exactly like the EU, but they want to bring the continent together to trade. And I think in work I'm trying to do right this minute is work on legislation to help the U.S., help the African countries in terms of technical assistance on how do you move from 50 plus countries with a variety of trade barriers to getting rid of all of those trade barriers so the continent can trade with each other. The reason why that's so important is because the different economies on the continent, they're at different levels. And yes. a lot of them do not cannot reach the scale to really do business with the United States. But collectively, they can. So, you know, the continent is divided into regional economic communities like the East African community, the West African community, et cetera. And so where you might have a tiny country and a very large country, they can combine forces to trade with the United States. So there's a lot of technical assistance that we can provide. But one of the things that I would like to see us change, and President Obama, this was his viewpoint as well, and I absolutely agree with it. We need to stop treating the African countries like they need charity. Their slogan is trade, not aid. So take vaccines, for example. We do need to get vaccines right away. But how about exporting the technology so the African countries can manufacture their own vaccines? Mm. There's some countries in Africa where we export food. Why do we need to export food when the African continent can provide food for the entire world? Agriculture, you know? And so we have to break the colonial mentality that we still have which is the, Af the poor African countries. I mean, the only thing you think of Africa are the kids, the starving kids that you see on late night TV. Most of the continent is peaceful. I'm going to be going to Namibia in a couple of weeks. And many of the countries have, you know, regular peaceful transfers of government, just like the United States. The only time you hear about South Central is if there's a breakout between the Crips right. and floods. Same way we view the continent of Africa. So most people know the countries that have the most conflicts as opposed to the countries that are peaceful and are doing well. So we've got an infrastructure bill. We've got a reconciliation bill. We've got uh, the budget for 2022. We've got the debt ceiling. And we can't forget about the competition bill in the United States Innovation and Competition Act that would invest millions in STEM and HBCUs. So before I let you go, I need to do a lightning round with you so you can just update folk because even on CNN, I don't know half the time where we stand. On infrastructure, will it pass? And when will the president get a bill on his desk? I think it will pass because all of the momentum is for it to pass. And I would predict that he would get a bill on the end of his, de um, on his desk, I would say uh, by the end of September, before the on beginning the next fiscal year. On reconciliation and this American Families Plan, what's in the bill first? And when do you think the president will have a bill on his desk or will he? Well, see, I think that they would go together. Oh, You know, Speaker okay. Pelosi has been adamant about that. 
So that that's why I say the end of September, because the right now the Senate is in the early stages. But the fact that they've reached agreement is huge. But now can we can we, can we talk about something real quick, though? Can yeah. we give her her flowers? I mean, how dope is Nancy Pelosi? Because she has to navigate and thread a needle that I'm not sure many people in Congress can. I mean, she has to, and she still has to work on the more progressive members of your caucus. What's it like working with somebody who's going to be remembered as such a luminary? Well, I I will tell you, you're going to get me on my soapbox now because uh, a few years down the line, when people really start studying the Trump administration, they need to acknowledge the fact that the only reason the government functioned in those four years was because of Speaker Pelosi. You just think about it for a minute, Bukhari. McConnell decided to join Trump's staff. I mean, he basically did whatever Trump said. So he didn't function like the majority leader or the president of the Senate. Pelosi had to carry the weight. And then the president was unstable. And so she's really been the one to hold everything together. And I just absolutely enjoy watching her lead. Having served in that role in the State House as speaker, I just take delight and watching how she navigates not only all of the pieces of, of our own caucus, but mm. the Republican caucus, the, the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, and the, and the White House to get the job done. She, she's fascinating. Uh, she just, she doesn't get, but she doesn't get her due. Never. Most women, most women in higher elected office do not. She is not given the acknowledgement that she deserves. Not, she at is not. not at all. On the budget, what should black communities look forward to seeing in the budget and when will it pass? Well, that's a good question. You know, there's two ways we approach the budget. I mean, the best way is for there to be an actual budget. But <laughs> oftentimes when we can't reach agreement, we pass a continuing resolution which just allows us to do what we were doing before with no changes in any of the numbers. So what people have to look forward to this time is that we have community projects in the budget for the Mm -hmm. first time. And I know in my district, for example, I'm looking at projects to fund that help people who are formerly incarcerated, that help to repair our tattered substance abuse uh, safety net, Um, So programs like that, homelessness, to really deal with community issues and to make sure that the dollars actually hit the street. Representative Lee and I were talking about this the other day where, you know, she's a master at appropriations and putting resources in the budget. The the representative representative Lee and Jim Clyburn are arguably the two best approach members we've ever seen. They can they can make magic happen with that with, with a line item. Yeah, but you know what we were talking about the other day is our frustration that you can put the money in the budget, but does the money hit the streets? Does it actually go to the people that we wanted to go to? So if you remember last year, the Congressional Black Caucus, we did these telephone town halls and Zoom calls every few days because in the pandemic, everybody was so thirsty for information. We had to know what was going on. And we kept passing things like to help black businesses to help black colleges, you know, uh, the safety net to make sure that the um, essential workers who look like us, you know, are taken care of. But every time we would have up to pass a bill, we would have to then 
change hats from being a legislator to being an advocate to being an organizer to make sure that the money actually got to the people we needed it to get to. So we would do Zoom calls with Black America, but then each of us did Zoom calls with our constituents and followed up. So that's, it's, it's just critically important. It's not enough to pass legislation. Then you have to fight for its implementation. Yeah. I mean, and, and in certain states in California where you have the ear of, of governors like Gavin Newsom, that's one thing. But when you're in South Carolina and you don't have the ear of Henry McMaster, that's something different. One of my last, I got two more questions for you and then I'll let you go because I know you're, you're running around. But the debt ceiling is always something we hear about. It bores people to death. But what is the debt ceiling? And I know I saw Mitch McConnell make a threat just recently, but will it get increased? Yes, the debt ceiling will get increased. So what that means is, is that to to make it uh, uh, simple is it allows the government to pay its bills, to borrow, to pay its bills. Now, you will have a lot of people squawking. We shouldn't go in debt. We shouldn't go in debt. These are bills that have already been spent. So if you had to borrow money to pay electric bill, you've already used your electricity. You're paying what you already used. So when we raise the debt ceiling, that means we're going to borrow, but we're going to borrow to pay for things for money that has already been spent. We're not borrowing to buy a new car. We're borrowing to pay to make a car payment. What happens with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, we have got to pass it. We have got to get it. (laughs) Amen. Amen. We just do. It's just unacceptable to tell people that we were going to do this and then to not get it done. Well, what's next for you? I I see Zach is on the call, so I, I dare not ask the question that's being written about. So I'll just simply say what's next for you. What's next for me, you know, in California, we uh, lost a seat, a congressional seat. And so we're going through redistricting. And what's next for me is definitely to run for reelection, but also to get my legislation passed. Criminal justice reform, Bakari, I focus on women and children in the criminal justice system, because while we're talking about criminal justice reform, we're really just talking about men. I work on transforming the foster care system because, Bakari, the foster care system is our entry point to the prison system. Yes. That's what happens with our young people when we cut them off for resources when they're 18. A large percentage of them filter right into the criminal justice system. So I'm trying to address it from every angle and then always fighting to improve U.S. relations with the continent of Africa. Well, whatever you decide to do, and, and including running for re-election, I am 135% behind you. You are one of my favorite people on earth, and <laughs> we are keeping you in our prayers as you work with both of my United States senators, Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham. But at the end of the day, I just want to say something that you probably don't hear a lot, which is thank you. Thank you for everything oh. you've done. You are fascinating. You're deserving. And we want to give you your flowers while you're here. So thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers <laughs> podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all for tuning in. And before I let you go, I got to give a shout out to the greatest Olympian in U.S. basketball history. That's right. None other than Coach Don Staley and my girl Asia Wilson for bringing home the gold this week. Coach Staley was the first black U.S. women's basketball coach and the second woman to win a gold medal as a player 
assistant and head coach. She's previously won three gold medals as a player, 1996, 2000, 2004, and two as an assistant. And she remains the best basketball coach in women's basketball, all while speaking truth to power on race in South Carolina of all places. Coach Staley is a national treasure, and I wanted to make sure I gave her her flowers because she doesn't get enough of them for being one of the best coaches or just athletes, period, we've ever seen, male or female, in any sport. She's truly a national treasure, and we congratulate her, Asia, and the rest of the U.S. women's team for representing us well this Olympics game. And in the case of Coach Staley, she represents us well literally every single time she's represented this country or just us in international competition. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys on Thursday. <laughs>